everyone and welcome to SALT Day 2. Thank you for joining us so early. My name is Maylee De Silva Vint, and I'm the Chief Compliance Officer of Bavay Capital. We are an alternative credit fund based right here in New York City, and we partner with governments globally to bring complex initiatives to fruition by conquering inefficiencies. I'm thrilled to be moderating today's panel on credit investing post-pandemic world. Today, we're going to take, take you through some macro themes uh, with a credit lens, um, walk you through the evolution of credit through the pandemic, and then I'll let our panelists take us where they want to go. We're lucky enough to have panelists from a variety of areas in the credit ecosystem. And so with that, I'll let each of the panelists introduce themselves with a brief background, where they sit in the credit space in their firm and how big each of their firms are. So Chris, why don't you kick us off and we'll go down the line. Thank you. Uh, Chris Henneman, um, I'm the founder and CIO of uh, 400 Capital. We're an alternative uh, credit manager, primarily focusing on structured credit. Uh, we're based in New York City and we have a team, investment team in London. Um, we manage uh, both uh, total return and uh, absolute return strategies and hedge fund, private credit, and separately managed portfolios, uh, primarily uh, focusing on uh, pension endowment foundation, family office and high net worth individuals. Jeffrey? Yep. I'm uh, Jeffrey Sherman. I'm the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Double Line Capital. Uh, we're an investment management firm headquartered in Los Angeles. We run the gamut of uh, fixed income equity strategies. Uh, we run up and down the cap structure. Uh, we run mutual funds, ETFs, hedge funds, separate accounts. If you have money, we'll invest it for you. Great. Uh, Dave Tricano. I work at BlackRock. Um, won't go too much into the background of the firm. I'm sure people are familiar with it. But within the four walls of BlackRock, I manage our opportunistic credit business. Think about that as investing across uh, hedge fund and drawdown private equity style credit strategies, uh, targeting the lower end of the credit curve, stress to stress securities. Shrini Prabhu, uh, co-founder and CIO of Angelo Capital. We're based in Atlanta. Um, again, fixed income manager. We manage sleeves of corporate credit, but primarily structured credit. Uh, we manage across mutual funds, hedge funds, private credit strategies. We have a public REIT, um, about 20 plus billion in assets under management. Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have all of you here today. Thank you. Um, so I think we'll start with the 50,000 foot view and what's going on from a macro perspective in the world right now. Uh, you have the Fed signaling that they're going to start tapering their asset purchasing program that they started at the beginning of the pandemic. You have inflation, you have geopolitical risk, you have supply chain disruption, and of course you have the Delta variant um, coming into play. Jeffrey, I think it would be super helpful <laughs> if you could distill some of these themes and the impact they have had and the impact you think they will have in the credit space. That's it? Yeah, okay. Um, Loaded question. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, look, inflation's on everyone's mind. Uh, this is unprecedented policy. It seems like that's all we talk about anymore is unprecedented. Um, and you have the Fed buying $120 billion a month, and people are freaked out that they're going to slow down their purchase pace. But their purchase pace is still aggressive, right? I mean, during the peak in the crisis, they were buying $80 billion a month. So the Fed's not going to be a minor player for a, for a long time from now. So... Uh, the focus is on inflation, of course, but inflation, you know, is it transitory? Is it not? We were joking backstage that, you know, it's your time horizon that matters there. And it doesn't look transitory in some cases. In some cases, it does. If you talk about autos, used cars, airline tickets, hotels, except in New York City, um, you're, you're seeing that the, those are calming down. But the big difference here is we haven't seen the wage component kick through and you haven't seen the rent and owner's equivalent rent side of the equation. So that, that's what's a concern for us. 
Uh, however, I don't think we go to this hyperinflation, stagflation. I think those words are abused today. Uh, I think people are you know, talking about a slowing growth. Yeah, when you have a 10% nominal GDP, you're probably going to slow a little bit at some point unless you, your name is China. So ultimately, I think you know, people are, are, are concerned that this is going to fall off a cliff, but we're in a very strong credit environment. Um, it's really tough to invest in liquid credit today um, because everybody's crowded into it because the Fed's pushed people there. So when you think about it, it's being selective. The beta trade is not good today because it's got a lot of risk, right? So corporate America is in great shape from a, a, a debt standpoint because they don't have maturity walls. They have a big debt burden. The servicing costs are low. It's not a problem right now. It could be in the future. So what does it mean? It means you want to own it. But the problem with it is if you're in the vanilla stuff, it's got a lot of duration. It's got a lot of interest rate risk. And so you have a lot of challenges. So what do you do? Well, you don't have to buy it. You can buy things. I mean, you're talking structured credit. We talk about securitized products. Um, and so Serene, they do a lot there too. So what we find is that there's still ways to play credit. Uh, you just have to do it very selective. You got to buy stories. It's idiosyncratic risk at this point. But don't be deterred by all the members of the Fed. At the end of the day, one person matters. His name is Jay. And until he's out of that seat, it's, he's all that matters. And he's not tapering in, in, in the next month or two. He's going to signal it. And guess what? They're not hiking rates anytime in the future so or anytime in the near future. So you got time. Buy your arms. Enjoy, enjoy your floating rate mortgages. And in Jay, we trust. Thank you, Jeffrey, for those insights and distilling all of those trends for us. Um, so next, I want to bring it down to a bit more of a street level view and talk about the journey of credit specifically throughout the pandemic. Uh, I think it'd be helpful for each of you to discuss some of the changes and themes or focuses you saw from 2020 to 2021 and how that may have played out in your portfolio. So if you look back 18 months ago to today, how does that look differently? Um, so Srini, maybe you can kick us off. Yeah, that would, that's great. Thank you. Um, so, you know, pandemic was interesting. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say our strategy has changed as much, but the pandemic allowed us to realign in terms of at that point, there was uh, an abundance of what I would not call distressed assets, but illiquidity that created a flow of assets where everybody had to take a step back and manage their portfolios and manage their liquidity. And specifically for Angel Oak, we had a, a major team going into the crisis of originating and, and owning non-qualified mortgages. We thought there was a, a better risk return opportunity in there. And we took a pause coming out of it as forbearances went up and we had to redefine where unemployment was going to be and what was going to happen to the homeowners and home borrowers. Coming out of it, as we've seen and as we talked uh, uh, back back there, that um, there's been, as you've seen, the, the mortgage credit has cured much better than people would have been, uh, would have thought. And so we are now redefining and, and reinitiating our non-QM uh, uh, strategy. So the, the shift has been we are more and more into illiquids, as we discussed. Um, liquid strategies are extremely competitive. Um, you know, uh, creating and owning your own assets is what we focus on on the non-QM side. And those are the ones we, are, we offer in our, in our private credit strategy. So that's been the, the major theme that we have at Angel Oak. Dave, maybe you can go into what you've seen. <clears throat> Great. So and we always compared 2020 to kind of where we are in 2021 to walking down a flight of stairs and then very quickly running back up. So I think if you looked at the balance of 2020, we, you know, obviously as the market started to sell off, I mean, we were long risk. And, and candidly, as the market still started to sell off, we got longer risk because you can start to see the support that was going to come in from third parties. So, you know, our investment approach is typically down at the bottom end of the credit curve. Uh, but what we really started out doing is deploying capital into the top end. So think about investment grade dislocation. 
think about as you start to walk down uh, the opportunity set is the Fed started to step in and obviously provide stimulus. You know, it started with investment grade. It moved to businesses that, frankly, normally wouldn't uh, spread at a, at a level that would attract us. Think about the real estate market. Think about some high quality corporates. And then we step down the risk curve. And, you know, we we typically have a focus on defaults. We have a focus on companies trying to avoid insolvency. Um, you know, that was a common theme last year. And we obviously played it uh, in, in a way that um, I didn't think we expected to coming into 2020. And, you know, a lot of bankruptcy risk that ultimately converted into uh, equity or post-reorg securities. That's something we continue to hold today. And I think the recovery has been a big beneficiary for our portfolio. So um, there's a lot of, of, of kind of corollaries to kind of the credit cycle. We didn't really have the restructuring uh, period or kind of stage within the traditional credit cycle that we normally would expect. Um, we think that's coming sometime out, you know, 18 to 24 months, just given the amount of leverage in the system. But from our strategy, you know, the, the created credit markets providing less interesting opportunities other than what we call events. And we can talk about that as we go through the panel. Uh, we also have an illiquid strategy where we've actively deployed capital as companies uh, have really been trying to solve the problem of uncertain demand recovery. Um, so really, we bifurcate how we invest across liquid and the liquid uh, market opportunities with the, the structure of our, our vehicles. Great. Jeffrey? Yeah, and I mean, same thing here. I mean, you start the cap uh, top of the cap stack in crisis and you, you play that recovery, then you start rotating down. And uh, the problem now you have is that spread is almost non-existent in most things. So where you have to go is what's non-traditional, whether you're doing direct lending, uh, you're doing loan origination yourself, or you know, you're just buying securities that people hate, right? That that's where the opportunities are. And so uh we're big fans of the commercial real estate market still. I think the death of office space is over exaggerated. Um, you know, multifamily is obviously very strong. We've seen industrial be strong there. And so um idiosyncratic ideas there are pretty attractive. The mortgage market's still great, um, yeah. you know, as you talked about. And so if you're focused on these type of assets that are just real assets, the good news about them is they tend to be short life. Uh, they, you know, a couple years in terms of a wall and therefore duration is low and they have a lot more spread than traditional corporate credit. So um, that's why I say you can still play the recovery and credit at this point. It's just a completely um, non-traditional type of credit markets. But uh, when I say non-traditional, it's like these markets have been around 30, 40 years. It's just uh, most people don't, don't know them because they don't trade in an ETF and the likes. I mean, it's taken a lot of the good ideas. I mean, it would echo a lot of the same things they said. I mean, I think the uh, I think the, the script is actually well known. You move from obviously a very technically oriented uh, opportunistic environment to something that's much more fundamental um, today. And um, moving from the top to the bottom, the challenge I think um, was was mentioned is that <clears throat> the liquidity in the system is so unprecedented. It really is squeezing out a lot of return. And it's it's you can't be in the liquid generic, in our opinion, plain vanilla products anymore. You have to be much more creative with your ideas. We have to do a lot more uh, in-depth research and take you know really uh, well-educated, frankly, bets or uh, positions on things that you actually can develop high convictions around. I'd echo what Jeff said is like things that we think in this environment are, are more interesting and trying to solve problems around you know, bank and financial institution balance sheets as they come back to the risk sharing markets. Um, after COVID, a lot of that closes up right away. You get this technical environment, everybody goes into a cave, things slowly reopen, and then, you know, we're getting back to an environment where risk sharing is coming back. And I think one of the things that we see, it's, that most people see, is just look at the GSEs. Fannie Mae has been closed from the risk transfer markets since COVID, and likely they're going to be back in the market later this year, or probably in early 2022. 
they're the biggest risk sharing participant in the market. But we're seeing it in Europe. A lot of the European banks are starting to come back out with risk sharing transactions, and we're trying to be first at the door, trying to solve those problems, trying to actually find some marginal incremental alpha return um, that hasn't been squeezed out yet. Um, so, you know, it's trying to find, you know, unique ideas, sticking to the same scripts and kind of trying to understand sort of the way markets are evolving uh, currently. Um, fundamentally, I think, you know, I'll say the same thing uh, Jeff mentioned is that, you know, we're looking at commercial real estate, you know, it's kind of, we, we took advantage of a lot of the technical um, situations that emerged in March and April and May and June. They don't last very long. There's far too many sophisticated investors that could actually take advantage of those. You try to exploit them while you can. Then you look for the opportunities that are actually going to take longer to emerge, evolve. Uh, we felt that, you know, commercial real estate, similarly, you know, it's, it's a long process. These are very long duration assets. Tenants are very long um, leases. They're, they're, they're longer commitments. So the, the, uh, the credit cycles are just longer. So it's, it's going to take a, a much longer period of time to actually uh, see the recovery play out. Some of, that's, some of that's actually correcting as we speak. And then there's going to be subsectors that are just harder. Uh, you know, some parts of office are a little bit more challenging. It's harder to predict the timing of recovery. Hospitality is the same. Uh, retail's got structural issues on top of fundamental issues that came on the backside of COVID. So there's a lot of complexity in that market. Uh, there is a need for capital. Clearly, capital's been destroyed. In, in that sector. So we look at that as actually one of the fundamental uh, uh, places that we're focusing on now. Um, that's interesting and, and still has a, a lot of uh, opportunity. Great. Um, so it sounds like everyone had to be pretty nimble. And I think that's true across our personal and professional lives. Dave, I think it would be helpful if you can speak specifically about the flexibility of credit as an instrument and how that played out through the pandemic. Sure. Um, Again, maybe just setting the frame. So we're a corporate credit shop. Uh, we focus on companies um, across not just private markets, but also traded markets. And so, you know, I think when we look at um, what happened during 2020, the flexibility of mandates, you know, it's absolutely critical. Um, and frankly, a lot of what we saw coming over the private market were companies that couldn't access the public market. So having that vehicle or having the kind of the two legs, if you will, to that stool is, is, is absolutely critically important. So um, you know, if we go back into the, you know, kind of the, the, the depths of March and April of last year, the number of companies um, that frankly were investment grade that had to issue at effectively sub-investment grade levels, um, you know, was significant. And, you know, the amount of collateral they historically never used to pledge that all of a sudden became available for you know, stepping down uh, kind of the, the, the credit spectrum when they went to the issue market. And so, you know, we actively participated in that that end of, of kind of the credit opportunity. You know, think about the classic Carnival Cruise when they came to the to the market and issued with you know $35 billion of unencumbered collateral. You could assign whatever value you want to it, but that's historically something they never had to pledge in order to actually raise capital. So I think that's you know one of the benefits of, of the credit market is you know last year really demonstrated the, the power of credit to help companies through a pretty uncertain time. And I think you know where we are, at least sitting here today, you know, a, a lot of that benefit is continuing to to to, to be harvested. And so um, you know, when we think about uh, a lot of how we invest, you know, the flexibility of credit markets, you know, what we, we focus on events. And so, you know, the credit market opening and closing creates volatility. We invest into that. Um, a lot of kind of what I would say is financial technology that's been created kind of into and out of the crisis is something we're continuing to, to harvest today. And, and you know, we've, we've been active participant in sponsoring SPAC managers, which is something not a lot of people talk in credit. It's got a lot of attributes to historical credit. 
uh, investing. And you know, we've been an active participant in sponsoring SPACs that are now looking to buy stressed, distressed assets as they look to deploy capital in, into the public market. So I think there's a technology there that that is is really kind of I think evolving. We'll see whether or not that's an institutionalized product or not. Uh, and that's a question that I think is open. But you know, when we look at we look at the interplay between you know credit um, and the flexibility of credit to allow companies to finance themselves. You know, we think the trend is going to continue to moving from you know liquid traded markets to liquid non-traded markets as companies have problems, and we've seen that evolution in our business. We have in our private strategy, we have a capital solution approach. The number of companies that historically could have issued in syndicated markets, you know, just are now looking for private solutions. They want to partner with companies that can help them finance themselves over time and not be subject to the the market windows opening and closing. And I think that 2020 demonstrated the benefit of having that ability to pivot across not just traded, but private for companies as much as, as, as frankly, financing sources. So uh, I think that's an evolution that's obviously been long tailed, as Jeff referenced, it's been developing over years, but I think it's only gonna accelerate as companies obviously have to uh, figure out ways to creatively finance their businesses given an uncertain demand environment can pop up pretty quickly. Right, so at Brevet, we're a little bit different. We're a little bit market agnostic to some of the themes you guys have described because we structure and originate our own loans directly to our borrowers and partner with governments. But I think one of the tools that we all have in our arsenals are the use of different types of vehicles to deploy our capital. And Trini, you and I were talking um, before about some of the ideas um, and how you deployed capital through different vehicles pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. So can you speak a little bit of how you use vehicles um, to deploy capital throughout the pandemic and why? Yeah, um, so you know, as, as we've, the teams have been, you know, liquid markets continue to be tight the Fed, Fed in play reduces the amount of assets and really uh, creates a need to uh, to uh, originate source um, illiquid assets. And so that that needs to change the liquidity spectrum of the vehicles that you deploy. So uh, one of the themes that we did at AngelOak, we launched a long-term private strategies with, uh, with institutional investors to invest over a long period of time where we can take advantage of some of the nuances of the non-QM mortgage market. Um, and then pre-COVID, uh, one of the vehicles that we uh, we looked at was to launch a public REIT, uh, which obviously uh, after COVID, there was no such thing as launching a public REIT. And we had to wait for uh, the REITs to come back. Um, but we, we we eventually officially launched the REIT la a couple of months ago. And and again, we have to deploy, and that's our way of facing uh, public markets to to execute our liquid strategies. But I think as as AngelOak has evolved, and I think all everybody on this uh, table can can say that is, uh, the, the you know the the investors also are are learning the the, the thought about extending the, the the term of the capital in terms of how you deploy, and that allows everybody at this table to to take advantage of the opportunities. You know we're doing it uh, through the mortgage market um, and especially the non-qualified mortgage market, um, and you know obviously commercial real estate is something that we are also involved in. So um, a lot of our strategies are now focused on deploying long-term capital, including the public REIT. So COVID and the pandemic um, changed how we do a lot of things in life um, for the whole panel. Did, did the pandemic impact how you evaluate things, um, even from an operational or, or underwriting perspective? And did it make you think of um, credit as a tool differently on a go-forward basis? And Jeffrey, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, there was uh, more uncertainty in the equation. I mean, I think we all became epidemiologists, right? Like we all become macro experts all of a sudden overnight. And so I, I think what you had to do was just plug a lot more uncertainty into the, the variables. And 
a perfect example was something like the CLO market, right? Where you, you had this corporate America was borrowing heavily. Um, you had this big engine there and people were pricing these, these securities to where they were going to have like unprecedented defaults and they still were money good. And these things were trading at 50 cents on the dollar. So there was some really good opportunities in that area where you could essentially take you know, the default vectors, sorry to speak bond jargon, but you, you can stress the portfolio. You can say that it's going to be two times worse the crisis. Recoveries are going to be half what they were in the past. And these are money good securities. So investors scratch their head why you're buying them as they go down, right? That's what all of our clients do. Uh, but you're saying these are money good um, through these very stressful areas. And so uh, there still are ways just to kind of stress that. Uh, same thing with the, the residential mortgage market. How did you figure it out when the, the president tells you that you don't have to pay your mortgage? And by the way, don't pay your car bill, don't pay your student loan. Well, that's like 90% of our securitized markets right there. Yeah. So we're just like, okay, thanks. Thanks for buying ETFs and telling people don't pay our securities back, right? So you, you had to really just throw a lot of the traditional analysis out. And look, we, we use like hurricane recoveries as a way to model the mortgage market because as people cure and come back from moratorium, what does it look like? So I, I think, you know, really just saying, how can we stress this? How can we stress the cash flows and what's going to happen? Because um, we didn't know what would happen. But the one thing we know is we know the cash flows, right? We don't know if we're going to get them or not, but how sensitive to them are we? And so that was really the way to, to really just get down and analyze securities at that point in time. And like I said, uh, we don't have any epidemiologists on staff. Uh, we've never seen a pandemic. Well, none of us are over 100, right? So we didn't know how to react, but we said, okay, what are parallels out here? And we thought you know, some of these kind of uh, geological events were very similar. Uh, we, we, we took the airline industry and said, look at what happened 9-11, right? We just had the anniversary there. But if you think about it, like what happened for airline travel to recover? And it's right on pace for that right now. Uh, yeah, there's been some curtailment there over the last month or so, but it won't recover until business travel comes back. So you have to really change the lens and not say, okay, this is a typical recession because there was nothing typical about it. Chris? I mean, I'd, I'd add to that. I mean, I think the... Um there's, there's really, I would bifurcate it into two different sort of uh, ways of doing the analysis. There's the, the, the crisis model, which I think kind of applies. You know, you could, if you're around long enough, I've been doing this for 30 years, you can kind of mark all the, you know, the, the I think I always call it rings in the tree where you had a fire. You know, you can see them and you kind of know how that model applies. And then this was a little different because we'd never seen a pandemic. And then the next thing is we're going to get aliens that invade from space and we're all going to say, how does this model work? And it's going to be different. And so you have to sort of think in the context of, Something will show up that we haven't necessarily planned for, and I think that's what COVID did. And it sort of, it sort of had to. That's the model where you have to recalibrate and you have to think about it differently. And uh, I would say, you know, we have the same, um, a lot of the same exposures, and we to consumer um, and in ways that we had to think differently. And so, when you look at like default curves, you can't apply universally sort of a default curve. You have to think about, you know, what is COVID impacting. You have to think about the hospitality industry. You have to think about the people that are in the service industry. Um, so there's a there's a stratification of consumers that you got to think about in terms of who are going to be affected, you know, with regards to the employment picture because it didn't it didn't universally hit everybody the same way. And so so those those models all had to be changed. Um, and so you know and then that that actually does a couple things. It actually highlights risks, but it also highlights opportunities. I think the other thing too, uh, which you know, to a large degree, we've been a beneficiary because we've been, we've been, you know, all of us have been active since the great financial crisis is um, you have to think about regulation. You have to think about policy initiatives. And so one of the things you got out of the great financial crisis is that 
you know, the government has tools that they aggressively will use. And, uh, and so, you know, yeah, some of them, you know, we thought the same thing, like, oh my gosh, we're just going to tell everybody there's a holiday. Don't pay any of your debts back. <laughs> you know, how's this going to work out? Probably not so great. And then you look at it and you say, but there's certain backstops and some of the, and some of the uh, structures and some of the subsectors that were quite frankly, really helpful. I mean, Fannie and Freddie being in conservatorship, I would say it was helpful that they were in conservatorship. The way the securities and the risks and the policy was deployed in that subset of the mortgage market was really different than the private market. The private markets, quite frankly, are free almost to do whatever they wanted. They could interpret the CARES Act however they wanted. You know, so we were kind of thinking, how are they going to interpret that? Let's get on the phone. Let's talk to lenders. Let's talk to servicers. Trina, you probably could speak to this yeah. ad nauseum. But it was, it was a different world in mortgage credit than it was in the, in the, in the government-sponsored. And the government sponsored had a lot of kind of the tools in the toolbox from the great financial crisis. So just completely two different opportunity sets uh, that, you know, behave differently, presented different ways that we could actually, you know, look at the opportunity. Um, so, it, you know, you've got the standard, you know, crisis model. And then you, you've got to apply sort of new models to this particular environment. And like I joke, I mean, we kind of think, you know, out of our imagination, what's the next one going to be? It's, you know, we're going to get attacked from space or... Frankly, I think I think cybersecurity is something we think about. I think, you know, that's something that's emerging that, you know, we have to pay attention to. And how how can that change the infrastructure, uh, you know, the financial infrastructure and how do you prepare for things like that? And it will just present a brand new set of of analysis that we're going to have to deploy as well. So um, but again, risks and, and opportunities always. So, Srini, maybe you can piggyback and dive into what Chris was alluding to in terms of the mortgage market. Yeah, I mean, it's um, uh, so when we go back to, we learn a lot of lessons, but when we go back to that event, as we said, the first step was the liquidity side of it. I think we can all uh, agree that the, um, you know, nobody, there was no standard deviation move that we wrote up uh, COVID in that. And so I, I'm a joke, but in all our strategies, when we show the scenario analysis, that was not the scenario analysis that we ever had in any of our presentations. So we learned that. Um, and I think what, we, what you saw was the first step was if you had proper liquidity vehicles and proper structure, you survived uh, to get to the next point when the Fed came in play and, and the market became more liquid. But the next step was, you know, I can speak from our perspective, is now you have mortgages, um, you know, non-government mortgages that we had underwritten with, you know, 75% loan to value. Um, you know, people putting money down, uh, 700 plus FICO score, and you're seeing now 30% of loans in forbearances, right? And the first step was we had to call people and like, you know, we you just don't get a forbearance, but we had to forbear anyway. And so, you know, now you have to go to the servicing as, um, as we talked about, as Chris talked about, and we got tremendous. The, the one thing that we don't uh, realize in, in, I think we can all, everybody on this panel, whether it's uh, residential or commercial mortgages or any consumer assets, the amount of data that we have today is significantly greater. It used to be a lot in corporate credit, but not in consumer credit. And, and um, you know, the amount of data that we capture on each of our mortgage borrowers is tremendous. And that allowed us to really think about how we service these assets, how we talk to the servicer. Um, and as we, as we uh, look back now, I mean, the 30% forbearance has led to pretty much no defaults in the, in the system which tells you the strength of the consumer, the strength of the housing market, but also learning lessons in terms of the fact that if you underwrite something properly, how does that work out? So, so it, was, uh, it was a great lesson for us in terms of understanding the behavior of the borrowers. And a lot of our borrowers actually are small business owners, which also talks about the small balance commercial and that market uh, did pretty well. You would have thought there were certain sectors 
that that struggled in that, but generally the small balance commercial did pretty well coming out of it. So. Great. So we're seeing a lot of spikes and you know potential new variants. Um, how are you positioning your portfolios for potential shutdowns, or are you not? Dave, maybe you can start off since you are event driven. Yeah, I think you know listen. Our event orientation um, really allows us to focus on just discrete outcomes, and I think it's just about pricing risk to that outcome occurring. So. I think when we look at um, at least how we invest, you know, it tends to be over a shorter period of time, um, at least at this point in time in the cycle. So you're really pricing companies' access to capital. That's a function of capital markets being open or closed to certain companies. I think that um, you know the amount of corporate activity is is significant. So um, you know we tend to think that that volatility is an area of the, of the traded credit market that you can drive out performance if you have that event orientation. So. Um, I think, you know, at least in the market, you know, we're not forecasting um, a shutdown to occur as we go into the, the winter months. And that's how we're positioned. But we, we tend to focus to discrete events and then reprice the return we're looking for. And I think that's just naturally at this stage of the cycle, um, how you can generate returns. I mean, if you look across corporate credit, I mean, there, for all intents and purposes, there is no convexity. So you're effectively buying a yield to to a call, you're buying a yield to maturity. I mean, I think that we're at historical lows from, you know, convexity. Um, default experience is going to be back at 07 levels. And I think, you know, the reality is that's the environment we're operating in. So the only way to generate excess return, we believe, across traded credit is through that event orientation. And I think away from that, you know, in our private market uh, investing strategies, you know, if we looked at, you know, the potential for shutdown where we're invested, you know, we're, we're effectively the sole lender. So, you know, from, from our uh, viewpoint, you know, we can obviously provide companies with additional liquidity to the extent of justified. Um, you know, we sit on 14 boards of the 25 companies we have in that portfolio and the express purpose of doing that, not as a voting member, but as an observer is to say, if the company's got a problem, you know, how can we help solve it? Can we do it with liquidity? Can we do it with the covenant? Do we have to do it by actually sitting down and restructuring debts because the company just can't service those those liabilities. And I think that's really the area from, from our perspective where you're more focused on a potential shutdown, how it's going to affect those companies. Um, and, you know, by sitting in those, in those in boardroom and also frankly being the largely the sole lender to those companies, you're going to be a pretty, uh, pretty advantageous position if that were to occur to, to make sure that if you're going to take incremental risk, you're getting paid for it. Great. So I just want to spend a minute on investor mindset and appetite. And maybe Chris, you can start off by telling us if you notice any shift in terms of mindset or appetite um, from your investors as a result of the pandemic? And what are you hearing from them now? Um, I think from our investors, uh, clearly, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold back from calling it red hot, but it seems like everybody wants to basically find a private credit opportunity. You know, I think people have learned that like liquidity premiums are very difficult to capture if you don't have patient capital. So, so we've, we've, uh, from our experience, we've seen just so much more demand for more patient capital type strategies, solutions. And so that, you know, if you want to roll that into the private credit, because most of the structures that, that feed into that market are, are of that nature. So we, we definitely see a lot of that. Um, the other thing, too, is I think that, you know, there's a, there is definitely a focus, you know, a sensitivity to liquidity. How are you positioned around liquidity? How do you manage your liabilities? Um, I mean, that was the Achilles heel. If you mismanaged it, you probably wouldn't be sitting here today. You know, it's just uh, you can see it. You, know, you get these events and they kind of wash out strategies that are, are probably pushed a little bit too far on the margin with regards to uh, liability management. So 
liability management's a big focus. Uh, you know, on the I would I would say you know you know the structure of funds. You know that private credit theme is also on the right hand side of the balance sheet. It happens to do with your capital. You know, as your capital patient. Um, and so those are real assets or real advantages. They're focal points, I think, of investors that we see today because they see the dark side of it, you know, when you go through an event like March and April. And they also see the, 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 the pleasant side of it if, if you're well positioned to get on the, uh, uh, through it, you know, in May and June and July last year, you can take advantage of it. So there's definitely a focus on the right hand side of the balance sheet, you know, uh, structure of capital, you know, is it well positioned and is it appropriately aligned? Uh, with the opportunity set that the manager can can execute in. Great. So um, can each of you take a moment and describe what you see as the major risks heading into 2022? Jeffrey, maybe you can start. Inflation. Pretty simple. Everybody talks about it. Um, it's it's detrimental to the bond business, right? Uh, we A lot of people have never seen inflation that, that work on a fixed income trading desk. So um, you know, I think that's one of the bigger risks you see out there. Uh, I think we've seen the, the liquidity, the amount of credit being supplied to the markets. Um, it's not a 2022 issue. I think you said 18, 24 months. I think that's the earliest we'll see kind of credit events if we see them at this point in the cycle. But we're still in a boom here. And so it's strange that, you know, if you'd have asked me six months ago, and this will show you how good I'm not at predicting things, I would have said you, you get a five handle inflation print. Tenure is going to get smoked. And here it is rallying because of technical effects, liquidity supply, treasury general account drawdown. I mean, you can go into the multitude of factors. So I, I think that there's just a lot of complacency out there where people are waiting for the next thing. And I mean, what is the 10 year trade in like a 10 basis point range for the last like two months? I mean, you talk about boring, right? And what's happening is inflation keeps printing with five handles, right? So it, it's a very strange environment from that perspective. And, you know, something's got to give. And I really think the catalyst is when the global economy reopens, right? We still have, you're starting to see the European economy start to try to reopen. Your previous question was on what happens if we shut down? We're not going to. The American spirit's not going to allow it. And people just aren't going to do it. So, um, you know, the bullheadedness, the stubbornness, it works sometimes, right? And so I would say that, you know, as you think about it, it's what happens with this power of labor, and we haven't seen this in many decades. And I think labor is starting to get power, whether it's demanding a hybrid work environment, demanding better pay, not going back to that job that doesn't pay you a living wage. And these are things we all have to deal with. And so we see it in hiring trends, right? I mean, we're still closed in our office. It's voluntary. And, you know, we get about, you know, 7% of the population show up on the first day as voluntary. And now it's down to 1%. Right. So it, there's no bid for it right now. And so I think what you have to do is think about those dynamics and there is inflation in the system. And I think we have to live with it. Um, but I think we go to like a three handle. And I think that's the new level. You know what we've seen in the last 50 years. You know, there's a great piece out by Deutsche Bank. They, they put a report yesterday talking about what's happened since the invention of the fiat currency. And, you know, this has been the lowest inflationary environment that we've seen in the last like 12, 13 years. But that's not the norm. Right. And so I think that's that's the thing we all got to think about, because who's excited about buying a 134 tenure today? Are you guys all running out? That's what you're here to hear about. Right. How great that trade is. No, you're investing in crypto. You're investing in stuff that has, you know, one minute returns that are what we're going to get in the bond market in those areas. Right. Yeah. So and at the end of the day, you have purchasing power risk. People forget about that. So I think inflation, it should be on the discussion. It should be on your mind. And you got to figure out a way to protect parts of your portfolio against it. But don't look to the bond market to do it right now, unless it's deep down in credit, things like that that have high cash flow. 
because it's not going to save you. Dave? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was joking. I mean, looking forward into 2022, maybe the biggest risk is we all come back to the office and we, we kind of look at each other and we start, you know, interacting with ways we have in the past. And we've been out of the office for really the last 18 months and we've had our, our best two-year performance over the course of the nine years we've been running the fund inside of BlackRock. And so I think we've adapted to a new normal, I guess, you know, and that's kind of the, the, the joke we make around the office. Maybe we should all not see each other over the computer because we'll continue to outperform. But I, I think, you know, listen, Jeff's comments are right. I mean, there isn't a company we talk to that isn't talking about inflation in their business. You can look at what's going on in the commodity complex. You can look at what's happened with transportation costs. You can see the power um, the employee is gaining. You can try to go hire somebody and try to offer what you thought uh, was, you know, the kind of a market clearing wage. And the reality is it's really hard to find people. So that's not start, that's not coming through the numbers right now. But the reality is, I think that is the biggest risk going into 2022. And there isn't a company we talk to that, that isn't talking about that as, as the biggest concern they have in their business, finding people, input costs, and actually having pricing power so that they can raise the cost of what they sell their products for. And so, you know, I think if you look at the bond market, you look at the high yield market, I mean, I think 85% of the high yield markets trading in negative real rates of return. I mean, it's just not sustainable. It's something's got to, something's got to adjust. And that's globally. So, and that's globally. Yeah. That's right. So, I don't know. I, you know, we're, we're not macro investors. We tend to focus on the micro that that would create volatility if that ultimately rears its head and investor sentiment shifts. I think that's actually good for our business, but it won't feel good. Great. So unfortunately, we have to pivot because time has flown. Um, so there, I think there are two last important things I, I would like to talk about. And one is um, the biggest learning over the past 12 months um, or 18 months and biggest opportunities that we're seeing. And so for us at Brevet, our biggest learning uh, was relationships are important. And, you know, that started with our employees, but went across the spectrum to our investors, borrowers, government partners, service providers, et cetera. Um, and then in terms of opportunity set, what we're seeing um, is obviously people getting back out there. And so um, revitalization of society and what the government's doing to help that in terms of infrastructure and economic development. Um, so if each of you could take that, um, one, give us your biggest learning over that past 18 months and what you're seeing as the biggest opportunity for the next six to 12 months. And Trini, we'll start with you at the end. Yeah, uh, the, the past 18 months taught us um, a lot about where the markets are and, and obviously uh, the markets became more liquid over a period of time. Uh, as you said, we went up in credit from a strategy perspective, and then and then as the market calibrated back, we went down in credit in terms of uh, more focused on residential credit. Over the next you know 18 months, um, and, and and even where the government is, and even if we have shutdowns and so forth, um, I feel we feel that the consumer credit, mortgage credit, will continue to to do better. Um, we feel there's a lot of population in the U.S. that uh, has does not have access to mortgage credit. Um, and these are self-employed borrowers, uh, gig economy borrowers. There's a lot more of those that are entering the system uh, that are going to need mortgage credit. And so that presents a tremendous opportunity to, to get some returns for in investors. Dave? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we've realized is how easily people are uh, yeah. adapting to different environments. And I think it's very simple. Um, I think that you've demonstrated you can actually work. I think the people are mobile. So I think the reality is that's the new norm. We have to adapt to it. Um, you know, from, from my perspective, I, I think that's, that's going to be how we're going to have to operate our business go forward, even as we move back to, back to office. Um, you know, and I think as it relates to the opportunity set, you know, from my perspective, as long as there's corporate activity, 
Um, and as long as companies are continuing to access the credit markets and pivoting across public and private, there's going to be lots of opportunities in credit. I mean, I, I don't accept the fact that people would always step back and say there's nothing to do in credit. I, I would agree with the fact that beta is no longer uh, cheap. It isn't. Uh, active management and, and, and credit, I think, is the way you ought to perform. And I, you know, I'm obviously biased, but that's my general view. So um, I think if you if you fast forward 18 months, I think you know actively managed credit strategies are going to outperform uh, kind of beta strategies, which is obviously how a lot of people have decided to shift their capital. And I think the last point I'd make is I'm always surprised, and we talk to our investors about this, how many people try to time credit. I think it's just a, a, you don't really hear that in equities. You don't hear it in a lot of other strategies. I think it's a mistake. You have to be able to catch points in time, and you have to be able to be deployed over time in order to do so. So. You know, that's that's one of the biggest things that I've learned from the last 18 months talking to our investors, how often people try to time markets and ultimately miss out on kind of the outperformance across credit. So unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, I'd like to thank the panelists. I think we're all a little bit more intelligent, uh, at least from the credit perspective. And thank you to the audience. Uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Mm -hmm.